Hello, James Kenny here, and welcome to my podcast, Land of the Golden Sunset, the evolution of the Irish from biblical times. This is episode number 35, and it's about Michael Collins and his time during the treaty and thereafter. I hope you like this and that you will share it with others on social media. was widely acknowledged as the most skillful negotiator on the Dáil government side, and he participated in the initial parleys, agreeing the basis on which talks could begin. The first meetings were held in strict secrecy soon after the Custom House Battle of the 25th of May 1921. The Custom House in Dublin was occupied and then burnt in an operation by the Irish Republican Army the Custom House being the headquarters of the local government board for Ireland, an agency of the British administration, against which the IRA was fighting in the name of the self-proclaimed Irish Republic. The operation involving over 100 volunteers was a propaganda coup for the Republicans, but a military disaster for the IRA in Dublin. A force of British auxiliaries quickly arrived and a gun battle ensued. Five volunteers were killed, along with three civilians, and about 80 volunteers were captured. The armed conflict was brought to an end on the 11th of July 1921, and negotiations were opened, which would produce the Anglo-Irish Treaty in December of that year. The Custom House was rebuilt after the end of the war, Irish local government records from the 1600s had been brought from rural parts of Ireland to the Custom House for safekeeping, and these were lost in the blaze. Following the burning of the Custom House, Sir Alfred Cope, 1877-1954, was Assistant Under-Secretary for Ireland in 1920-22. He is notable for serving as an intermediary between the British government and Sinn Féin, before and after the establishment of the Irish Free State. He was knighted in 1922 for his role. Later, de Valera travelled to London for the first official contact with David Lloyd George. A truce was subsequently declared from noon on the 11th of July 1921. An Irish delegation, led by Eamon de Valera, accompanied by Robert Barton, Erskine Childers, Arthur Griffith, Count George Plunkett, Austin Stack, Kathleen O'Connell and Lawrence O'Neill went to London. Eamon de Valera and David Lloyd George met four times at 10 Downing Street between the 14th and the 21st of July. While in London, de Valera also met Sir James Craig on the 15th and 18th of July 1921. Finally, de Valera and Lloyd George met one-to-one in a private meeting and on the 20th of July, 1921, Lloyd George wrote to Eamon de Valera as follows. Sir, I send you herewith the proposals of the British government, which I promised you by this evening. I fear that they will reach you rather late, 
but I have only just been able to submit them on behalf of the cabinet to the king. I shall expect you here tomorrow at 11.30am as arranged at our last meeting. I am your obedient servant, David Lloyd George. Enclosure Proposals of the British Government for an Irish Settlement 20th of July 1921 Lloyd George set out the proposals which finished as follows. There can in fact be no settlement on terms involving, on the one side or the other, that bitter appeal to bloodshed and violence which all men of goodwill are longing to terminate. The British government will undertake to give effect so far as that depends on them to any terms in this respect on which all Ireland unites. But in no conditions can they consent to any proposals which would kindle civil war in Ireland. Such a war would not touch Ireland alone, for partisans would flock to either side from Great Britain, the Empire and elsewhere with consequences more devastating to the welfare both of Ireland and the Empire than the conflict to which a truce has been called this month. Throughout the Empire there is a deep desire that the day of violence should pass and that a solution should be found consonant with the highest ideals and interests of all parts of Ireland, which will enable her to cooperate as a willing partner in the British Commonwealth. The British government will therefore leave Irishmen themselves to determine by negotiations between themselves whether the new powers which the pact defines shall be taken over by Ireland as a whole and administered by a single Irish body or be taken over separately by Southern and Northern Ireland with or without a joint authority to harmonize their common interests. They will willingly assist in the negotiation of such a settlement if Irishmen should so desire. By these proposals, the British government sincerely believe that they will have shattered the foundations of that ancient hatred and distrust which have disfigured our common history for centuries past. The future of Ireland within the Commonwealth is for the Irish people to shape. In the foregoing proposals, the British government have attempted no more than the broad outline of a settlement. The details they leave for discussion when the Irish people have signified their acceptance of the principle of this pact. 10 Downing Street, SW1, July 20th, 1921. It was almost one month later before de Valera responded fully to Lloyd George's proposal document. Following intense deliberations in Dublin, among his deeply divided cabinet, de Valera informed Lloyd George that the proposal document had been rejected by the cabinet. He stated that the only basis for settlement was for an absolute separation from Britain. He said that the offer of dominion status to Ireland was illusory as no other dominion was being asked to concede such access to ports or being subjected to such restrictions and denials of rights. In his letter dated the 24th of August 1921, de Valera hardened in his stance 
and warned Lloyd George that he and all Irishmen stood ready to fight against any oppression by Britain. We have not sought war, nor do we seek war. But if war be made upon us, we must defend ourselves and shall do so, he wrote. By now, de Valera and Lloyd George were at an impasse. A conference between Britain and Ireland seemed more unlikely, given de Valera's latest letter. We have rejected these proposals, and our rejection is irrevocable. You refuse to concede to recognise Irish independence, and threaten to give effect to our view by force. Our reply must be that if you adopt that course, we can only resist, as the generations before us have resisted, he wrote. During this truce period, de Valera sought for official designation as President of the Irish Republic, and obtained it from the Dáil in August 1921, in place of the title which had previously been used as President of Dáil Éireann. Not long after, the Cabinet was obliged to select a delegation that would travel to the London Peace Conference and negotiate a treaty. In a departure from his usual role, de Valera adamantly declined to attend insisting instead that Michael Collins should take his place there, along with Arthur Griffith. They nominated a team of plenipotentiaries, including Arthur Griffith, a reluctant Michael Collins, Commandant Robert Barton, who delivered all of de Valera's letters to Lloyd George in London, Commandant Eamon Duggan and George Gavin Duffy. Erskine Childers acted as secretary to the delegation. Michael Collins resisted the appointment, protesting that he was a soldier, not a politician, and that his exposure to the London authorities would reduce his effectiveness as a guerrilla leader should hostilities resume. He had kept his public visibility to a minimum during the conduct of the war. Up to this time, the British still had very few reliable photographs of him. The Cabinet of Seven split on the issue, with de Valera casting the deciding vote. Many of Collins' associates warned him not to go, that he was being set up as a political scapegoat. Negotiations to prevent civil war resulted in the army document published in May 1922 and was signed by pro and anti-treaty IRA officers, including Michael Collins, Dan Breen and Garrodo Sullivan. This manifesto declared that a closing of ranks all around is necessary to prevent the greatest catastrophe in Irish history. It called for new elections to be followed by the reunification of the government and army, whatever the result. In this spirit, and with the efforts of moderates on both sides, the Collins-De Valera Pact was created. This pact agreed that new elections to the Dáil would be held with each candidate running as explicitly pro or anti-treaty and that, regardless of which side obtained a majority, the two factions would join to form a coalition government of national unity. A referendum on the treaty was also planned, but it never took place. The packed elections on the 16th of June 1922 therefore comprised the best quantitative record of the Irish public's direct response to the treaty. The results were pro-treaty, 58 seats, anti-treaty, 35, Labour Party 17, Independent 7, 
Farmers Party 7, plus four unionists from Trinity College, Dublin. Six days after the packed elections, Sir Henry Wilson was assassinated by Reginald Dunn and Joseph O'Sullivan, two London-based IRA volunteers who, ironically, had served in World War I, where Dunn had lost a leg. Outside Wilson's home at 36 Eaton Place at approximately 2.20pm, he was in full uniform and he was returning from unveiling the Great Eastern Railway War Memorial at Liverpool Street Station at 1pm. He had six wounds, two of them fatal to his chest. Two police officers and a chauffeur were also shot as the two assassins sought to avoid capture. They were then surrounded by a crowd and arrested by other policemen after a struggle. Don and O'Sullivan were convicted of murder and hanged on the 10th of August, 1922. British Army Field Marshal Wilson had recently resigned his commission and been elected an MP for a constituency in Northern Ireland. He had a long history as one of the chief British leaders opposing Collins in the Irish conflict. At that time, Wilson had served as military advisor to the Northern Ireland government led by James Craig, in which role he was seen to be responsible for the B-Specials and for other sources of loyalist violence in the North. The debate concerning Michael Collins's involvement continued into the 1950s when a number of statements and rebuttals on the subject were published in periodicals. These were reprinted with edition in Rex Taylor's 1961 book, Assassination, The Death of Sir Henry Wilson and the Tragedy of Ireland. The death of Sir Henry Wilson caused a furore in London. Lloyd George, the Prime Minister, sent a letter to Collins saying that the ambiguous position of the provisional government with regard to the IRA in the four courts, could no longer be tolerated. The British cabinet met the day after the assassination and agreed that Collins's reply had not given a definite enough commitment to disperse the four courts occupation. They ordered Neville Macready, commander of the British garrison, still in Dublin, to attack the four courts, whose Republican garrison they blamed for the shooting of Wilson. The plan was put on hold at the last minute when Macready advised the government on the 26th of June to give Collins' provisional government one more chance to act against the four courts. Michael Collins himself was in Cork at the time of the crisis. President Arthur Griffith and military officer Emmett Dalton met the British official to discuss the continued occupation of the four courts by the irregulars under Rory O'Connor. There is little documentation of the decision taken by the provisional government, headed by Collins, to attack the four courts. Historian Michael Hopkins writes, The scarcity of evidence is explained by the acute sensitivity of the subject, both at the time and since. When Collins arrived back in Dublin, his forces began to act against the anti-treaty garrison. On the 27th of June, they arrested anti-treaty IRA officer Leo Henderson as he was enforcing the Belfast boycott by seizing cars. In retaliation, the anti-treaty IRA men abducted J.J. Ginger O'Connell, a Free State General, and held him in the forecourts. 
These two developments led to the Provisional Government's 27th of June 1922 order serving notice on the Forecourt's garrison to surrender the building, their arms and release O'Connell that night or face military action at once. According to historian Charles Townsend, Collins must have consented to this, though the actual decision seems to have been taken by Griffith. Peter Hart similarly writes, It was Griffith rather than Collins who took the lead in this decision. However, Cabinet member Ernest Blyde recalled that the decision to attack the forecourts was almost automatic once Collins had agreed to it. Collins' position in this conflict was extraordinary indeed. A majority, perhaps of the IRA, he had helped lead in the War of Independence, were now ranged against the Provisional Government, which he represented. In addition, the force which, by the will of the electorate he was obliged to lead, had been reorganised since the truce. Formed from a nucleus of pro-treaty IRA men, it had evolved into a more formal, structured, uniformed national army that was armed and funded by Britain. Many of the new members were World War I veterans and others who had not fought on the nationalist side before. Collins' profoundly mixed feelings about this situation are recorded in his private and official correspondence. Artillery was provided to Richard Mulcahy as Minister for Defence and the Free State Army by the British for the purposes of attacking the Four Courts. Emmett Dalton, an Irishman who had served in the British Army and the IRA, who was now a leading Free State commander and close associate of Collins, was placed in charge of it. The Four Courts surrendered after three days of fighting. Heavy fighting broke out in Dublin between the anti-treaty IRA Dublin Brigade and the Free State troops. Much of O'Connell Street suffered heavy damage. The Gresham Hotel was burned and the forecourse reduced to a ruin. Still under Collins' direction, the Free State rapidly took control of the capital. By July 1922, anti-treaty forces held much of the southern province of Munster and several other areas of the country. At the height of their success, they administered local government and policing in large regions. Collins, Richard Mulcahy and Ono Duffy decided on a series of seaborne landings into Republican areas, which retook Munster and the West in July and August 1922. That July, Collins set aside his title as chairman of the Provisional Government to become Commander-in-Chief of the National Army. However, according to Charles Townsend, he became a kind of generalissimo, combining military and political supremacy. Griffith had no desire or capacity to dispute the day-to-day -day conduct of government with him, and while Mulcahy had great administrative capacity, he deferred to Collins as a strategist and thinker. Collins also prorogued the meeting of the Dáil until the end of hostilities, a move that historians such as John Regan have seen as a non-constitutional concentration of power in Collins himself and his military colleagues. Around two weeks after Cork City had been taken by the Provisional Government forces, Collins travelled there to attempt to seize large sums of money that the anti-treaty Republicans had lodged in various banks under the account of the Land Bank. 
There is also considerable evidence that Collins' journey to Cork in August 1922 was made in order to meet Republican leaders with a view to ending the war. Collins also conducted a series of meetings regarding the possibility of peace talks in Cork on the 21st and 22nd of August 1922. In Cork City, Collins met with neutral IRA members Sean O'Hegarty and Florence O'Donoghue with a view to contacting anti-treaty IRA leaders Tom Barry and Tom Hales to produce a truce. The anti-treaty side had called a major meeting of officers to Bail Nablaw, a remote crossroads, to discuss the ending of the war. De Valera was present there. However, Michael Hopkins writes that there is no evidence that there was any prospect of a meeting between De Valera and Collins. The People's Rights Association, a local initiative in Cork City, had been mediating a discussion of terms between the provisional government and the anti-treaty side for some weeks. Collins' personal diary outlined his proposals for peace. Republicans must accept the people's verdict on the treaty, but could then go home without their arms. We don't ask for any surrender of their principles. He argued that the provisional government was upholding the people's rights and would continue to do so. We want to avoid any possible unnecessary destruction and loss of life. We do not want to mitigate their weakness by resolute action beyond what is required. But if Republicans did not accept his terms, further blood is on their shoulders. In August 1922, it seemed as though the Civil War was winding down. The Free State had regained control of most of the country, and Collins was making frequent trips to inspect areas recently recovered from the anti-treaty forces. His plan to travel to his native Cork on the 20th of August was considered particularly dangerous, and he was strenuously advised against it by several trusted associates. County Cork was an IRA stronghold, as much of it was still held by anti-treaty forces, led by Tom Barry and Tom Hills, yet Michael Collins was determined to make the trip without delay. He had fended off a number of attempts on his life in the preceding weeks and had acknowledged more than once in private conversation that the Civil War might end his life at any moment. On several occasions, Collins assured his advisers, they won't shoot me in my own county, or words to that effect. On the 22nd of August, 1922, Collins set out from Cork City on a circuitous tour of West Cork. He passed through McCroom, then took the Bandon Road via Crookstown. This led through Bailnablaw, an isolated crossroads. There they stopped at a local pub named Long's Pub, now known as the Diamond Bar, to ask a question of a man standing at the crossroad. The man turned out to be an anti-treaty sentry. He and an associate recognised Collins in the back of the open-top car. As a result, an ambush was laid by the anti-treaty column at that point, on the chance that the convoy might come through again on their return journey. Between 7.30 and 8pm, Collins' convoy approached Bailnablaw for the second time. By then, most of the ambush party had dispersed and gone for the day, leaving just five or six men at the scene. Two were disarming a mine in the road, while three, on a laneway overlooking them, provided cover. A dray cart, placed across the road, remained at the far end of the ambush site. 
The anti-treaty irregulars in the laneway opened fire with rifles on the convoy. Emmett Dalton, the Free State commander, ordered the driver of the touring car to drive like hell. But Collins said, no, stop and we'll fight him. He then jumped from the vehicle, along with the others. At first, the group took cover behind a low grass bank bordering the road. But Collins then jumped up and ran back along the road to begin firing with his Lee Enfield rifle. The Vickers machine gun in the armoured car had also been firing at the attackers, but then stopped because a badly loaded ammunition belt caused it to jam. Apparently, to get a better view of the laneway of which he had seen the enemy running, Collins left the protection of the armoured car and moved even further back around a bend in the road out of sight of his comrades now standing in the open. He fired a couple of shots, and as he was once more working the bolt of his rifle, he was struck in the head by a bullet, believed to have been fired by one of the ambush party, Dennis Sonny O'Neill, a former British Army sharpshooter. Sonny O'Neill's documents somehow survived an order by the government in 1932 that specified files relating to 1922 and 1923, the period of the Civil War, be destroyed by burning, in case their contents led to reprisals, and O'Neill's surviving documents have now been added to the online military records archive. Born in 1888 in Tivoli, County Cork, O'Neill was one of five brothers who were all active during the War of Independence and the Civil War. He had served as a mounted constable in the RIC and fought as a marksman for the British Army in France during the World War I before being discharged after he was shot in the arm. After returning home, he joined the IRA and was considered a prized intelligence asset as he had free access to the RIC depot, Dublin Castle, and various British Army clubs. During this period, he said he was introduced to Collins in 1920 and was given a number of handlers close to Collins to pass information to. He also said he met Collins on a second occasion in 1921 after being given a message to pass to him in connection with negotiations in London. But when the Civil War broke out, he took the anti-treaty side and returned to County Cork. Although he did not say he had killed Collins, O'Neill detailed being present in Bailnablaw in a sworn statement after he applied for a military pension in 1934. He had been returning from an IRA divisional meeting when he heard a Free State convoy was in the area. We accidentally ran into the Blaw thing, he said. We took up a position there and held it until late in the evening. Military intelligence files described O'Neill as five foot eight inches tall, of stout build and weighing around 16 stone. He carried a light bamboo cane when walking. A very downcast appearance, hardly ever smiles, never looks a person in the face when speaking. A report by Agent 145 noted in 1924. It said he frequented the mountainy districts of Templederry, Kilcommon, Rare Cross in County Tipperary and Dune in County Limerick after the Civil War and never remained in the same house two nights in a row. Another file written by an Army intelligence officer in December 1924 described O'Neill as a first-class shot and a strict disciplinarian. A separate memo the same month described him as undoubtedly a dangerous man. 
One of those who supplied O'Neill with a reference when he sought the pension was Frank Thornton, an ally of Collins and a pro-treaty fighter. Dennis Sonny O'Neill was eventually awarded military and RIC pensions worth £135 a year. In later life, he became a peace commissioner in Nina, County Tipperary, and also acted as a director of elections for Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil in the county before dying in 1950. Sonny O'Neill never claimed to have shot Michael Collins, but he was there with Tom Hales and was one of the three out of the five anti-treaty ambush gang that were shooting at the convoy and, injured or not, he was a rifle marksman, having been a gunnery sergeant in the British Army during World War I, where he served from November 1915 to May 1917 as musketry instructor and troop sergeant. After the ambush, Dennis O'Neill was on the run until 1926. Michael Collins was the only fatality sustained in the ambush, although another member of his party suffered a neck wound. After he was shot, the fire from the ambushing party quickly fell off and they withdrew from the scene. Collins was found face down on the roadway. One of his men whispered the act of contrition into his ear, but Collins was clearly close to death, if not already dead. He was lifted into the back of the touring car, with his head resting against Dalton's shoulder. The convoy cleared the Draycart obstruction and resumed its journey to Cork. The lengthy time the convoy took to cover the 20 miles back to Cork City was because many of the roads were blocked and the convoy had to travel across muddy fields and through farms to circumnavigate the obstacles, all in darkness. At times, when the vehicles became bogged down, members of the convoy had to carry Collins's body on their shoulders. The touring car eventually had to be abandoned because of mechanical troubles. There was no autopsy. Collins' field diary was taken by Dalton, who had been with him during his tour of the South. The body was first presented at Shanachiel Hospital in Cork, a small military establishment, and then shipped around the coast to Dublin, where it was laid out in St. Vincent's Hospital. From there, it was removed to the City Hall beside Dublin Castle, where it was laid in state. Numerous questions remain about the events surrounding the death of Collins, because the only witnesses to his death were the members of the Free State Army convoy and the anti-treaty ambushers. As no two stories match, and participant statements from both sides are contradictory and inconsistent, unanswered questions linger about what happened that day. Michael Collins lay in state for three days. Tens of thousands of mourners filed past his coffin to pay their respects, including many British soldiers departing Ireland who had fought against him. His funeral mass took place at Dublin's pro-cathedral, where a number of foreign and Irish dignitaries were in attendance. Some 500,000 people attended his funeral, almost one-fifth of the country's population at that time. No official inquiry was ever undertaken into Collins' death, and consequently there is no official version of what happened, nor are there any authoritative, detailed contemporary records. De Valera is alleged to have declared in 1966, It is my considered opinion that in the fullness of time history will record the greatness of Michael Collins, and it will be recorded at my expense. James Emmett Dalton, 1898 to 1978, was travelling with Michael Collins when he was shot at Bill Nablaw. 
He served in the British Army in the First World War, being awarded the Military Cross and reaching the rank of Captain. However, on his return to Ireland, he became one of the senior figures in the Dublin Brigade of the Irish Republican Army. He was a close associate of Michael Collins and travelled with Collins to London separately from the Irish Treaty negotiating team. He was a military liaison officer for the treaty talks. During the Irish Civil War, he held one of the highest ranks as Major General in the pro-treaty National Army, but resigned his command following the death of Michael Collins. Emmett Dalton later founded a film production company in London and founded Ardmore Studios in Wicklow, together with Louis Elliman in 1958, producing a number of notable pictures in the 1950s and 1960s. Films such as The Blue Max, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, and The Lion In Winter, all of which were filmed in Ireland. Mm-hmm.